Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. I want to share several announcements uh, with us this morning, but before I do so, um, I thought it would just be good in light of uh, all that has gone on uh, this week and the news and all of that, uh, just to share a little bit uh, from the Word of God. You know, a lot of us come from all different perspectives and and opinions uh, politically, and uh, I could stand up here and share with you my perspective uh, and my opinion, Uh, but the chances are some of you would give a loud amen, and others of you would say, well, I'm not quite so sure. And so this morning, I just want to read uh, scripture that will help frame our hearts and mindset um, for everything that is just going on uh, in our country and in the world today. So, from the law, uh, Leviticus chapter 19 says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them, for the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. From Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, Yahweh defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And then from the prophets, from Ezekiel chapter 19, now this uh, was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. From Malachi chapter 3, so I will come to you and put you on trial, and I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, and those who defraud laborers of their wages, and those who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice says the Lord God Almighty. And then from the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 25. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then out of Luke chapter 10. The man asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down that same road, and he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put uh, the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him there. The next day he took out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The, Jesus asked the man. Well, then the expert in the law replied, The one who has had mercy on him. And then Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Uh, these are the words of God. And remember that the words of God always point us to the word of God, who is Jesus, uh, who is the Christ. And so I just think that uh, it would be appropriate for us at the beginning uh, of our time together this morning just to say uh, a word of prayer that we might be people of the word. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, your word is filled um, with instructions for us, um, 
that often goes countercultural to uh, what we sometimes would want or desire in our hearts. It uh, goes countercultural to sometimes what is most popular. And the reality is, Lord, your gospel um, is scandalous and it requires something of us. And so my prayer this morning for us is simple, uh, that as the church and as the people of God, uh, we would endeavor uh, to be people of your word. And that regardless of what uh, backgrounds or opinions or perspectives we may hold, uh, that together we would seek your face and that we would come to the knowledge uh, of who you are, Lord, so that we might also come to know who we are. Uh, for in, often in your instructions, that is precisely what you are doing. You're helping us to understand you and also to understand us. And so God, help us in that endeavor today, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in a series uh, called The Gospel According to John in which we are just taking a, a walk through uh, John's gospel. Uh, and we are going to be in it for a while, taking breaks here and there, but just wanting to uh, pull all of our attention to this gospel. And so the gospel of John is, is unique from the other gospels because over 90% of what we read in the gospel uh, of John is actually not included in the other gospels. And so this is a very unique uh, gospel. And it's also unique because he's telling history from a theological perspective, uh, where the other gospel writers, the synoptic gospels, are really doing a synopsis of Jesus' life. So they're telling theology, but strictly from a historical perspective, where John is really uh, telling uh, history, though, but from a theological perspective. So he's always putting the emphasis on the theology. And what that means, then, is that much of the gospel is focused on helping us to understand who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. Uh, this, is, this starts right off the bat in the prologue, which is the first 18 verses of the gospel, uh, where we learn that Jesus is the eternal word of God made flesh. Uh, and John says that Jesus tabernacled among us. And he does that in order to show us that the glory of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ, that all the glory of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. And then uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, uh, last week uh, we, was covered by John Walken, and uh, he did a great job of filling in uh, for me while I was at a commitment uh, with the District Church of the Nazarene. Uh, but what he talked about is there's a difference between the baptism that John the Baptist offered and the baptism of the Spirit. And ultimately, his encouragement was for us to move in the way of love. And I, I believe that those were timely words for us going into this week. And now today, I want to look at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. It'll be up on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bibles with me. But John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, uh, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And then he brought him to Jesus. Then Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, uh, but now you will be called Cephas, 
which, when translated, is Peter. Now, at first, this seems like a simple story of two guys who decided to go and find Jesus. Uh, But there's more going on here, and so I want to uh, explore this a bit. Uh, John the Baptist says to these uh, two men who at first are unnamed, uh, he makes this announcement. He says, look, uh, the Lamb of God. Now, this is actually the second time that John, in this passage, is referring to John the Baptist. This is the second time that John the Baptist has referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. The first time he did it was in chapter 1, verse 29, just a few verses before, where he says, again, look, the Lamb of God. But the first time he makes this addition, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the gospel writer reveals that John the Baptist understands that Jesus is the one who will bring salvation to all the world. In fact, the Lamb of God is a phrase that is unique uh, to the gospel of John, at least among the gospels. And then when he goes to write his book, Revelation, uh, he uses uh, the, the imagery of the Lamb of God as a central image that really connects and goes through and is a thread throughout the entire book Uh, of Revelation. And so for for John, the gospel writer, the writer of Revelation, this imagery of the Lamb of God is absolutely central to understanding who Jesus is. And remember, one of his whole purposes is for us to understand who Jesus is and then how we should respond to him. And a central image for understanding the character and the nature of God and who Jesus is in particular, he wants us to see this Lamb of God. Now, this imagery, of course, for a first century Jewish person would would point them to the Jewish sacrifice of, of the lamb, in which the lamb would take on or absorb the sin of the people. And then in taking on that sin or absorbing that sin, the lamb would then be sacrificed. And so for John, and this comes out most clearly in the book of Revelation, The victory of Jesus is found in Jesus absorbing the sin of all of humanity and then being brought to the point of death. And I think that's really interesting for us to understand that central to understanding who Jesus is and who God is, is this image of the Lamb of God. And this image is one that reminds us of sacrifice, of absorbing sin, of taking sin on, and then dying. And what John wants to say very clearly is that the very victory of God is found in the death of Jesus Christ when he becomes the Lamb of God. Now, what all that was accomplished there and all that, was, uh, all that happened in his death is then verified and solidified through the resurrection. But the real victory of Jesus is found in his death sacrificial death for us. That is to say that that the glory of God is revealed in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And then that is verified through the power of the resurrection where Jesus ultimately defeats death. This has a lot to say to us as the people of God and has a lot to reveal to us about the nature of who God is. In other words, when God flexes his divine muscles... It looks like the self-sacrificial love of the cross. That when the power of God is displayed, it looks like a lamb being slain. In fact, this is the the imagery that he uses all throughout the book of Revelation to point us 
to the different kind of victory that God embodies than the, than the victory of Rome. In fact, the book of Revelation is an indictment against empire, and at that time it was Rome. And, and so what he's doing all along is he's indicting the power displayed uh, through the empire Rome by comparing it and contrasting it to the self-sacrificial love displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we, when we look at, when we read this Lamb of God, anytime that it comes up in the Gospel of John, anytime that it comes up in the book of Revelation, we really need to see and understand what the, what the writer is actually trying to point us to and what he wants us to understand. That the very glory of God and the power of God is displayed in the self-sacrificial love of the cross. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it this way to his letter in, uh, to the church in Corinth. He says, the wisdom... Uh, of the cross is foolishness to those who are per- the, the wisdom of the cross uh, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And he's pointing us to that very same fact that central to the to the power of God is the self sacrificial love displayed by Jesus on the cross. Now, after this announcement from the from John the Baptist, uh, look, the Lamb of God. Uh, these two disciples then go and follow Jesus. Now we learn from the passage that one of the disciples is Andrew, uh, and, and then we, we learn that he then brings, uh, uh, brings in his brother Simon. And so in the story, uh, we have two, we start with two, and one, we only know one, Andrew. And Andrew then introduces his brother Simon to Jesus. And so ultimately we have three characters, but we only have two names. And so all along in the story, there's one who is unnamed, this, this sort of mysterious second follower uh, of Jesus. Uh, but it is widely accepted, and this is really interesting, and this is more of a, just kind of an FYI for you, uh, but it is widely accepted by scholars that the other disciple uh, is actually John, the writer himself. Uh, but he doesn't include, he doesn't say himself, uh, but he, rather he just refers to himself, but leaves him, himself unnamed. And in fact, a couple other times in the gospel, he will tell a story and omit the name of a character, and, and often that character is usually himself. And so when we, read these, when, when we read this gospel account, we are reading a first-hand account of the ministry uh, of Jesus, that the writer himself is right there living life right beside Jesus, in fact, following Jesus uh, after his call. And the truth is that all on its own, this would really be a great story. I mean, it's a great story of, of the revelation of who God is. Look, this is the Lamb of God. And then uh, this wonderful story of these two men who then go and follow Jesus based on this proclamation and this announcement of who God is. And then they begin to invite uh, their, their family, their friends, and others to go and follow Jesus. And, and the truth is, is that all on its own could be a great story. And it could challenge us to, first of all, see the true character of who God is. Second of all, be quick to then share that with other people all around us. I mean, this is an evangelistic message if if there ever was one, right? Uh, But there's actually even more going on than just that. Because the fact that they followed Jesus is not the end of the story. It's actually just the beginning. The fact that they heard a proclamation of who Jesus is and then made a decision to go and follow him, that initial decision to follow him, is really just the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story at all. Because for John, the gospel writer, discipleship is both following Jesus, but then remaining in him. 
In other words, for, for John, there is this point, this decision of, yes, I want to say yes to Jesus in the proclamation of who he is. I want to follow him. But, but it goes further than that. Discipleship is then going on to remain in him. This comes out most clearly in John chapter 15 when, when the writer records that Jesus has told his disciples, I am the true vine and you are the branches. You must remain in me. What this means for us then is that there needs to be in us a continual longing to know more and more of Christ, a continued hunger to discover more and more of who he is. And then as we hunger, as we have this continual hunger and this continual longing to discover who God is in Christ, what it will do is it will lead us to places where our view and our understanding of God expands more and more and more. And so perhaps maybe a good litmus test to to discern in our own lives if we are continually seeking after God is to ask this question. Is my view of who God is, is it growing or is it shrinking? Because if we are seeking after the infinite God and as we continually long for him more and more, what we'll find is our, our understanding of who he is gets bigger and bigger. But if we find that our view of God is getting smaller and smaller, then I would contend to you that we might be going in the wrong direction. Because when we seek to know him more and more, what will also happen is that we will know ourselves more and more. In the passages that I read before the announcements, particularly in the, in the law, uh, but even in the story of the Good Samaritan, I think it's really interesting uh, that following a, a command, an instruction, do this, care for these people, that's, that's a, an instruction, but the instruction points to the character of God. The reason for the law was to reveal the heart and the character of God. But then there's always a following reason, go and care for the foreigner because you were once a foreigner. There's always sort of this, this bouncing back and forth, this interplay between understanding who God is and then understanding who we are. And so what I want to say to you is that if discipleship is not just an initial decision to go and follow Jesus, but if discipleship is sort of the ongoing process of learning to remain in him and seeking after him and, and, and longing for under, to understand him more and more, the, the the consequence of that, and this is a good consequence, is not only will our understanding of God begin to expand and get larger, but we will begin to understand ourselves more and more of who we are. And I would submit to you that you cannot be in relationship with the infinite God and then forever maintain a small view of who he is. author and and writer and and prolific speaker Richard Rohr talks about three boxes. Um, Richard Rohr is an interesting character. Among uh, theologians, he's called called Big Papa. Is that right, Ryan? Big Papa? Uh, Big Papa Rohr is what they call him. Uh, He's just just a Santa Claus looking guy. And then when he speaks, you, you just can't take notes fast enough because it's just like he's the most quotable theologian there is almost. Uh, but he talks about three boxes in terms of our, our spiritual uh, maturity and growth. 
He says, box one is the box of order. Uh, In box one, everything you believe about God fits really nice and neatly into a theological box. Uh, In box one, you know the answer to every question. You have a solution for every problem. Uh, Following Jesus is easy, clean, and neat. And the reality is that box one is a great place to be. Uh, But you can't stay there forever or you will never mature. In fact, many Christians live their entire lives in box one of faith development. Uh, faith, in other words, the faith that they practice as adults is really the same as what, as what they were handed as kids. Uh, but in order to mature, we need to get out of box one, the box of order, and, and we have to get into the box, the next box, box two, which is disorder. Uh, in disorder, in the second box, you start to question some things. Uh, all of a sudden, faith isn't so neat, clean, and easy anymore. Uh, we are often brought into, or we are often ushered into, box two by suffering. Uh, by, because suffering of some kind uh, leads us to the conclusion that the easy answers that we were given... Uh, just don't work anymore. Whatever easy answers you were given to all those questions, in the midst of suffering, those, those answers often break down. And so the system that you were given in box two, you start to see all the cracks that are in it. And the reality is, is that part of remaining in him and continually hungering and longing for more and more of who God is is being able to embrace the uncertainty and the disorder of box number two. Because this box is the one that is leading you into maturity of faith. But the reality is, is that too many people, once they are ushered into box number two, the the box of disorder, once they are ushered into disorder through suffering, too many people just abandon the faith that they, were given to in, that they were given in box one because the easy answers don't work anymore. And so they, just, they say, oh, if the, if the answers that I weren't given aren't true or they don't work, uh, then this whole thing must be, must be false. And they just, their whole faith system just crashes under the weight of suffering. The other response to disorder, though, is that often people go the other way. And instead of embracing the, the, the time of uncertainty and, and questioning and doubt that comes with disorder, uh, they go the other way and they start defending all the boundaries of box one. And when you get into a situation where you are defending and spending your life and your energy defending uh, the boundaries of box number one, might I submit to you that this is called fundamentalism. You see, we must continue to grow because God is bigger than the clear boundaries of box number one. And then ultimately, though, we need to get to box number three, which is reorder. (laughs) This box order, box one, is a great place to live, but you can't stay there. Box number two, disorder, is a really hard place to be. It's a really hard place to be. Uh, But we must walk through box two in order to get to reorder. 
Box number three is where you have come to embrace a faith that in many ways is similar to what you were handed to and had in box number one. But it is much, much larger and much more stable. And also, when you live in box three, the box of reorder, where you take this system of faith that if you grew up in the church, you were given as a kid. But then suffering begins to call out the cracks in all of those canned and easy answers. When you come then to reorder, it's not that it's totally different or dissimilar from box one. It's just that you adopt all the things from box one that are good and true and beautiful, but now your view of who God is is much larger. Your faith is much more stable. It's able to weather difficulty and suffering. And guess what? In box three, you are much less threatened by mystery and uncertainty. Your ideas of who God is have grown and have expanded. And in fact, you have learned to see the other. And when you learn to see the other, and what I mean by that is box one usually gives us a self-centered faith. Faith is all about me. In reorder, we begin to move into, and in maturity, we begin to move into a box where faith now is oriented toward the other, which is what the gospel always calls us to do. The words of Jesus The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus is consistently moving us from orientation to self to orientation to other. And what spiritual maturity is, is the ability then to be oriented toward the other. And guess what? When we are oriented toward the other, we tend to be a lot less defensive. And part of what remaining in him is being able to weather and to season all the things that will eventually bring us into box three. But it isn't like, hey, once you get there, you've kind of arrived and you can just settle down. But rather, we must continually seek to grow and to remain in him. It is in this box, reorder, that you can experience freedom and maturity in Christ. And so discipleship isn't just about deciding to follow Jesus at one point in your life. It is learning to remain in him so that you can continually discover more and more of who he is and then more and more of who you are in him. I'd like to take a moment to tell you how I am seeking to remain in him and to understand myself. Over the past several months, people have pointed out things in me that up to this point I have been blind to. Some with, I believe, very loving (laughs) intention. Others, I'm not quite so sure. (laughs) But they have pointed out to me that I have a real tendency to come across as critical, judgmental, harsh, or unemotional. And part of the assessments that we were conducting last weekend with ministry candidates 
uh, part of that whole process is that you yourself uh, take the assessment. (laughs) It doesn't make sense for us to assess people on things if we aren't also assessing ourselves. And in that, I learned uh, about the good parts of my personality. If you are familiar with the DISC personality test, uh, I am a very high C. And in that, uh, as part of that process, I learned to embrace all the good parts of my personality, that I am analytical, I'm detailed, um, I'm good at critical thinking, uh, which, which makes me well-suited for study and presentation and teaching and those kinds of things. Uh, but it can also lead me to be or be perceived to be unemotional, uh, critical, and so on. And if I am completely honest with you, up to this point in my life in ministry, I have largely been blind to this. Um, I have, I've been operating with uh, what now seems to be almost a gigantic blind spot of how I am perceived as I interact with people. And so what, now, what I see now is that I, sometimes words... Uh, that are shared face-to-face or over email or by text message that I never intended to be hurtful or critical in any way are often hurtful and come across as criticizing. And this morning I recognize that maybe this is more for my benefit than anyone else's. Um, But I believe that this knowledge, this new insight, this new ability to see myself has allowed me to see the circumstances surrounding our staff transition last fall a little more clearly. Uh, Particularly with Justin, words that were intended to invite him into the decision-making process, intended to communicate his value to the church, were instead seen and heard as critical and hurtful. And what happened is, at least as I now have, have tried to see everything clearly and have been aching and hurting and praying over all that has gone on in our church over the last few months, I believe that hurt caused many in our community to feel like they needed to choose a side because um, they saw a leader and another leader hurting And now, whose side do I land on? And what happened was that created division in our church. And my attempts to bring healing up to this point, I I believe to many, still came across as measured and calculated and cold and unemotional. And it isn't in my DNA or my God-given personality to come up here and and, and just sob and to cry But I want to recognize and I want to tell you this morning that I have seen parts of me that I haven't seen before. And I want to ask your forgiveness for any of you that have been personally hurt or have experienced any hurt in this process. And I want you to know that my heart, my intention was never, ever, ever to hurt Justin or to hurt this church or to hurt any of you. 
And if we can all just be really honest for a moment, we've lost some folks. And I bear the weight of that every day. And so I just want to tell you as your pastor that I'm doing my best to remain in him. I don't pretend to be perfect. I don't pretend to be A, number one, my way or the highway. I only claim to be one who comes alongside of you who is seeking to follow Jesus and remain in him. And I believe that in remaining in him, God has given me some clarity about how his Holy Spirit can just begin to shape me. And I think that this week has been really intense in that, of just kind of learning to see and understand who I am. And I've gotten some very, very, very valuable and loving feedback from people that have helped me see that. And so I just want to tell you today, that I'm doing my best to remain in Christ. I want you to know that the Spirit of God is at work in me. And I'm seeking the counsel of trusted mentors and friends. And that God is shaping me to just be a better leader, to do what he's called me to do. And I covet your prayers. I covet your prayers. And I actually believe that this is something that God wants to do in all of us. That it isn't just like, oh, uniquely me, put, put me on a, on, a, on, a, on a pedestal isn't the right word, but sort of put me on a spotlight and say, oh, this is just for you. <laughs> I believe this is something that God wants to do in all of us. That as we continually seek and draw after him and seek his heart, he wants to reveal himself and then he wants to reveal us to ourselves. <laughs> And say, this is uniquely who I have created you to be. And so now let's work in your strengths and let's build those up and then let's sanctify and redeem the parts of you that are just a little rough around the edges so that you can go and be effective as a disciple for Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to change who I am. He doesn't want to change who you are. He created us, but he does want to sanctify us and redeem the ugly parts of us for his own glory. And I'm on that journey. And I believe that God is inviting all of us on that journey as well. And for any of you that may still be upset about all that has gone on in our church, I do want to humbly ask for your forgiveness and for your grace as we move forward together as a community into what God would have us to do. Now, by the end of the passage, Jesus looks at Simon, Andrew's brother, and he changes his name to Simon Peter and invites him to follow him. In the, in the words of theologian N.T. Wright from his commentary on the Gospel of John, it says this, now what Andrew and Simon Peter thought they were looking for, uh, thought they were doing was looking for the Messiah. What they didn't realize is that the Messiah was looking for them. I want to read that again. What Andrew and Simon Peter thought they were doing was looking for the Messiah. What they didn't realize was that the Messiah was looking for them. 
And I think if we can embrace this truth and see this really simple story for what it is about these two men who followed Jesus, but then by the, by the, at, the, at, the, at the turn of a moment, then Jesus is then inviting them to follow him because he's on the hunt for anyone who will live according to his ways. I believe that's a great word for us as well, that every time that we are seeking after Jesus, Jesus is also seeking after us. And the fancy theological word for that is called provenient grace. That God is chasing after us. He's moving us in new directions. He's moving our hearts into uncharted territory. And I believe profoundly that this reveals the character of God. Because God is looking for those who will answer the invitation to follow Christ. And to walk in the way of Christ. And the reality is that every time you turn around, God is there waiting for you. Amen? Every single time you turn around, God is there waiting to embrace you, to help you grow, to help you go into the next thing, the next season, the next uncharted territory, whatever it is, God is moving us forward. Oh God, may we let go of such a small view of who you are. May we let go of just putting you into this tight, neat little theological box that we defend so so vigorously. But God, may we realize how expansive and loving your love and your grace actually are and the freedom that is there. To walk with you and alongside of you. The Christian life is not primarily one of keeping rules or drawing lines. <laughs> the Christian life is life lived in the expansive freedom of Christ as we follow Him and as we remain in Him. And so I encourage us all today. To recognize this truth. Discipleship is not just about a moment of decision where you decide to follow Jesus based on the proclamation of who he is. That's a great first step. That's a necessary thing. And I believe that many of us could probably point back to the point in our life where we heard the proclamation of who Jesus is and we said, yes, I want to follow him. But let's not let that be the end of the story. Let's only let that be the beginning of the story in which we live our lives doing our best to remain in him. Keep walking with him, recognizing his presence, walking with us and allowing him to form us and to shape us. And may our view of who he is be ever expanding because he is an infinite God for which there are no boundaries. And creation itself points us to this truth. You know, many years ago, scientists used to say, used to kind of recognize what was inside of our galaxy. And then a little bit after that, they recognized there's a galaxy that's beyond our own. And then a little bit after that, they realized there's many more galaxies. And now they're saying, that there are six galaxies for every living human being on the planet. Our minds can't even comprehend that. And so this creation that God, through his word, literally just spoke into being is absolutely infinite and without boundaries. And God is saying, yeah, I'm kind of like that. (laughs) 
And I think too long and too much. We try to embrace just this tiny view of who God is. And then we miss out on the freedom and the maturity that he wants to bring us into by remaining in him. And so may we together, may we just journey together in being a community of people dedicated to growing in Christ and coming to realize more and more who he is and he is faithful then to help us to understand ourselves more and more.